Oh, and the cards. The cards. <laughs> Hand out the invitation cards. We have a couple of thousand of them to go out. So take a handful as you go and just put them everywhere. I'm not even going to tell you where. You just get creative and, uh, and, and, and pray that God would, would lead and uh, bless as we do that. So you can open in your Bibles at this time to Deuteronomy chapter 15. And if you need a Bible, just lift up your hand really high. God bless you. I see that hand. See, I do lead people to Christ. Deuteronomy chapter 15. Now, in case you are just joining us in our study of the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy consists of three sermons that were given by Moses during the last one month of his life. And just prior to the children of Israel entering into the promised land that God had promised to Abraham some 400 years previously. And we find ourselves tonight in chapter 15, which is in the middle of Moses' second sermon. So we're about halfway through the book in the middle of Moses' second sermon. And tonight, as we break into chapter 15, what we have are laws concerning economic policy for the children of Israel when they establish their government or when they come into their land. Now, since the fall of man, it happened way back when God first created Adam and Eve and set them in the garden. There has not been one single form of human government or human economic policy that has been ultimately successful. They have all come and gone. They have all risen and fallen. And the reason for that is not because of the problem with the systems. The systems were systems in and of themselves. There was nothing wrong with them. The problem in every situation is always man. It's the fall of man. That man is sinful by nature. And when you put sinful man as an ingredient in any system or any situation, it cannot ultimately stand. And so from the beginning of time, even until now, there has never been a system that has ultimately worked. But what we have before us in chapter 15 of Deuteronomy is the answer to the question of how to have a lasting, thriving economy. Because God tells us how to do it. So let's see what God tells us through Moses. Look with me, chapter 15, verse 1. And we read, At the end of every seven years, thou shalt make a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor that lendeth aught unto his neighbor shall release it. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, neighbor or of his brother because it is called the Lord's release. Of a foreigner you may exact it again, but that which is not with thine with thy brother, thine hand shall release. Now, it would be very nice if... In fact, what Moses was saying here is that at the end of every seven years, all bets are off, or all debts are off, rather. That every seven years, all the ledgers just automatically go to zero, and whatever you borrowed, you know, is, is now forgiven, and you're done. That would be nice, but that's not what it means. What it is, is that every seven years, the seventh year, they were to not collect on the debts that they, you know, had lent out. So you wouldn't have to pay your mortgage for a full year. You would get a year off every seven years. That sounds nice, doesn't it? You wouldn't have to make payments. Now, the land was to rest every seven years. They weren't to sow seed in the field. They weren't to, you know, sow or reap in that seventh year. And so God didn't expect them to have to pay their creditors during that year either. Now, the foreigner that would work, you know, right through the seventh year, they would still collect. If, if one of the Israelites had 
made a loan to someone who was not a Jew, they would still be required to pay. But if they were an Israelite, they would be free for that entire seventh year. And then in the next year, they would begin again to pay off, uh, you know, the, the debt that they had. And so they were free for that year. They didn't have to um, pay that thing. Now, he goes on to say, save when there shall be no poor among you. For the Lord shall greatly bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance to possess it. Only if you carefully hearken unto the voice of the Lord God to observe to do all these commandments which I command thee this day. And now here is the answer to the question, how do you have a thriving, lasting economy in a nation? And here is the answer, and it isn't what you and I would think. The answer is that you give heed to your relationship with God, that you're walking in a right relationship with him. And that when God looks at a nation and he sees that that nation is right in his eyes, God is going to bless the economy that's connected to that nation. And the result of it will be, as it says in verse 6, it says, For the Lord thy God blesseth thee as he has promised thee. And thou shalt lend unto many nations, but thou shalt not borrow. And you shall reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over you. Now, that became true of the children of Israel in their height, in their pinnacle, in the time that they were walking closely with the Lord. But as they turned from the Lord, so also did his favor turn from them economically. Now, I find it interesting for you and for me that in our lifetime, and I'm speaking even from my vantage point, and I'm a lot younger than a lot of you, you know, that in my lifetime and in our lifetime, we have seen our nation go from the position that is described here, a nation that lends but that does not borrow, to the nation that is the greatest debtor nation that has ever been in the history of nations upon the earth. We were the greatest lending nation some 30, 40 years ago, and today we are the greatest borrowing nation in the world. Did you know that in the month of February, last month, we borrowed $254 billion as a nation? And just to put that in perspective, that's $9.1 billion a day. And that's an amount of money that is beyond even trying to illustrate or explain or comprehend. That is a magnanimous amount of money. Now, if you recall back on December 19th, which, again, we're going back just a couple of months, I taught from this podium right here, and I shared with you about the economic woes that our country is in. And at that time, back in December, we were borrowing at a rate of $3.6 billion a day. That means between middle December and February, we increased the amount of money that we are borrowing to sustain ourselves as a country by almost three times, from $3.6 billion to $9.1 billion a day. That's ridiculous. Why are we in the position that we're in? The answer is because not our economic policy, which is terrible, but it's because of our spiritual condition. We've turned our backs on the Lord as a nation, and we are reaping the benefits of that. And so God tells them that that will be the plight if they would turn. This is the way. You want to have a thriving economy? You want to do well financially as a nation? Take heed to my ways. Stay close to me. And you'll do great, God says. Well, he goes on, verse 7. He says, If there shall be among you a poor man of one of thy brethren with any of thy gates in thy land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, thou shalt not harden thy heart, nor shut thine hand from thy poor brother. But thou shalt open thine hand wide unto him, and shall surely lend him sufficient for his need in that which he wants, that which he needs. You're to lend to those that have need of lending. And and God's heart behind that is always that he wants to see the poor of the land brought into a place of stability and ultimately to a place of prosperity. And part of the way that he does that 
is by using his people to help them. And he's not talking about a handout. He's talking about a responsible way of helping someone and then having them, you know, repay it. He says, beware, verse 9, that there be not a thought in thy wicked heart saying, the seventh year, the year of release is at hand. And thine eye be evil against thy poor brother, and thou givest him nothing, and he cry unto the Lord against thee, and it be sin unto thee. Thou shalt surely give him, and thine heart shall not be grieved when thou givest it unto him, because that for this thing the Lord thy God shall bless thee in all thy works and in all that thou puttest thy hand into. He says, listen, you are not in your evilness, and God knows us, doesn't he? To look at your calendar when someone comes to you and says, hey, I need some help. Can we you know, work out some terms for me to borrow some money? And you're not to look at the calendar and say, oh, man, you know, we're only six months away from the year of release, and then I'm going to get a whole year where I'm not going to collect it, and I don't want to wait a whole year where I'm getting nothing on this, and so you withhold, and you don't, God says, don't do that. You shall surely lend, and God says, I will step in, and I will help. I'm going to work on your behalf. And God always says that. The Bible says that he that lends to the poor lends to the Lord. And the Lord is never a debtor to any man. He pays excellent dividends and great interest on that which is lent to him. And so he tells us, open your hand wide to your brother. And then he says in verse 11, for the poor shall never cease out of the land. Therefore, I command thee, saying, thou shalt open thine hand wide unto your brother, to thy poor and to thy needy in thy land. Now, from Genesis to Revelation, There is never a time when God condones laziness. In fact, on the contrary, from Genesis to Revelation, God always condemns laziness. He always calls people to occupy and to work hard with their hands. And so what this section is here is not God saying, I want you to support people in sloth. That the person who's not willing to work or the person that is constantly making bad decisions and constantly getting themselves into trouble, that I just want you to continually bail them out. That's not the idea behind it. But at the same time, every single person that lives on the planet, no matter how wealthy they are and no matter how wide their margins are, can in two or three quick events that happen in their life come to a place where they're in trouble and where they need a little help. And there's no one that isn't vulnerable from having that happen to them from time to time in their life. And there's nothing wrong with them receiving help in that time in a way that is responsible and reasonable and helpful to them. And so God has made a way for that to happen, and these are the laws concerning it. Now, he goes on to say in verse 12, he says, And if thy brother... A Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman be sold unto thee and serve thee six years. Then in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from thee. Now, this is interesting. If you as a Jewish man or a Jewish woman weren't able to pay your debt and you really got yourself into into a problem and, and there was no solution, there was no way out. Then one of the things that you could do is that you could sell yourself or you would be sold into the market as a servant to someone uh, and, and, and they would pay your debt and then you would kind of become an indentured servant to them. You would move into their house or onto their estate and you would work for them and, and that would be the payment. Now, there was a limit of that. Six years. So you couldn't work for them. You couldn't be a slave in that regard in this society under these terms for more than a six-year period of time. And that was good. There were certain benefits to that. The first thing, I mean, if you really consider the concept of what's going on, the first thing that was advantageous to it is that the collateral for a man's debt was ultimately his freedom. And that would make a person automatically responsible and considerate about what they're borrowing and will they be able to pay it off. I mean, how many of us, when we went to take out a car loan or a mortgage or anything, if the terms of it 
were that if we defaulted, if we couldn't pay, the net net we would be sold as a slave for a period of up to six years. That would make us think twice about how much we were borrowing or what we were buying. It was just automatic wisdom built right into the system. At the same time, it set automatic credit limits on what people could borrow. Because ultimately, if you were a bank or a creditor, the most that you could exact from a person was six years of labor. That was the ultimate collateral. That's all you could get. And so you wouldn't loan someone more than what six years of labor was worth because you weren't able to keep them as a servant for longer than six years. It's just wisdom built right into the thing. But there's a third advantage, and that was this, is that it always allowed hope and a second chance for the person that defaulted. It always gave them an opportunity that once they had served their term, that they had a chance to rebuild their life again, that they wouldn't be forever held under the weight of that debt, under that bondage, and they wouldn't be ruined forever. But at the end of that time, they would then be set free, and they would be set free with liberty. It's interesting that the Bible always operates in the cycle of six and one. We see this op, uh, the cycle of six and one throughout the whole Bible. Six days God created the world, and in the seventh day he rested. Six days man is to do his labor and his work, but in the seventh day man is to rest. Six years, God said, you'll sow your seed and reap your harvest, but in the seventh year the land is to rest. It's a Sabbath of rest for the land unto the Lord. Six years a servant would serve, but in the seventh, he would go free. He would be sent out free by his master. The rabbis believed that even time itself was on a cycle of six and one. The scripture declares in Psalm 90, under the inspiration of Moses, who wrote Psalm 90, he said that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. And just as the Lord created the world in six days, and then on the seventh day he rested, so they also believed that God would do his work upon the world in 6,000 years, or 6,000 millennia. And that in the 7,000th, man would be set free from his slavery to sin that he had been sold into by Adam in the Garden of Eden. That for 6,000 years, man would toil and sweat under the bondage of sin, but in the seventh, he would go free. There would be a day of rest, a thousand-year reign, where there would be rest, peace upon the earth. Now, that's exciting to me if that's true, because we know that the creation of the world is dated at about 4,000 B.C. And we know that the coming of Christ is about 4,000 years after that, and where we stand is about 2,000 years on the other side of that. And so mathematically, though we don't know the date exactly of when creation took place, what we do know is that about 6,000 years has passed since the creation of man upon the earth. And so we look forward to that day of rest when Jesus Christ will reign from Jerusalem for a 1,000 years, as it says in the book of Revelation, and there will be peace and prosperity on the earth. Mankind sold in sin, slaves, servants, because of the debt of sin. But there's a day coming when we'll be set free. So six years they would serve. In the seventh they would be set free. And then in verse 13 he says, And when you send him out, free from thee, you shall not let him go away empty. You shall furnish him liberally out of thy flock and out of thy floor and out of thy winepress. Of that wherewith the Lord thy God hath blessed thee, thou shalt give unto him. And you shall remember that you were a bondman in the land of Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeemed thee. Therefore, I command thee this thing today. Now, when they were sent out, they weren't to be sent out with nothing. They were to be provided for, bountifully given enough so that they would be then able to get back on their feet and start a life on their own outside there in the world. But there was a stipulation. Notice in verse 16. He says, and it shall be, if he, that is the servant, say unto thee, I will not go away from thee, because he loveth thee and thine house, because he is well with thee. Then thou shalt take an awl, and thrust it through his ear unto the door, and he shall be thy servant forever. 
And also unto thy maidservant thou shalt do likewise. It shall not seem hard unto thee when thou send him away from thee. For he hath been worth a double hired servant to thee in serving thee six years. And in or, and the Lord thy God shall bless thee in all that thou doest. Now what this is called is called the law of the bondservant. And it's interesting to me that this is the first thing that Moses gave to the people after he gave to them the Ten Commandments. It's, it, the, the law is initially given in Exodus chapter 21. And in a nutshell, what it was, was that if you had been a servant for six years and you were happy there, or you had taken a wife while you were there and you couldn't take the wife with you as you're being sent out, or you had children in the house, or you had just a really good situation and you didn't want to leave it, then you could go to your master and you could say, hey, I want to stay. You can't pay me to leave. You can't give me enough to get going on my own. I'm staying right here. This is where God has me, and this is where I want to be for the rest of my life. And he would take you to the gates of the city, which was where the politics would be done, and he would take an awl, like an ice pick, and he would hammer it through your ear and put a gold earring in it, and that was the sign that you were a bondservant or a servant by choice for life. Each one of the apostles of Jesus Christ that wrote to us in the New Testament called themselves a bondservant. The word is doulos in the Greek, and it's from this principle or from this concept that they took that name. It was Paul's favorite title for himself. In every one of his letters that he wrote to the churches, he calls himself the servant of Jesus Christ, or Paul, the bondservant of Jesus Christ. Same word in the Greek, it's the doulos. And that is the servant by choice. The one who has chosen, he's the one that purchased me. He paid the debt that I incurred that I could never pay off. But he set me free and I choose to serve him with my life. And so I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Now that raised an interesting question for me when I consider that they called themselves that, bondservants. And there's been a few times over the years that I've had this thought, and maybe you have too. Is does that mean if I choose to be a bondservant of the Lord, or if I'm a servant of the Lord, or if he's paid my debt, then does that mean that I'm required to serve the Lord for six years? Do, do I have to serve the Lord for six years if he bought me, and then after the sixth year, then I can choose? Well, Lord, I want to continue serving you, or now I'll, I'll go on my own, and you know, you're still my God and all, but I'm just going to kind of check out for a while in this ministry thing. What, what gives as it concerns this law and our service to the Lord, do we have to serve him? In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that famous passage of Paul, read it to you. Paul writes this. He says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every single one of us has a debt, a ledger, that we couldn't pay in heaven's chronicles, the sin debt. But the Bible tells us there in verse 24, it says, Being justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And that is that Jesus Christ, when he hung upon the cross, paid the price in full to cover the debt that your sin and my sin incurred. Now, there are three words in the Greek language that are used for that word redeemed, which is to pay that price. The first word is the word agorazo. And I know you don't care about the Greek word, but you will care about the definition. And if someone was redeemed, agorazo, it means that they were purchased in the slave market for the purpose of being traded. Slave trade was a moneymaker. Just like people trade stocks or trade bonds or trade real estate, they would trade slaves. And so if you were agorazo, you were purchased to be sold to someone else at a profit. But that's not the word that's used in Romans 3.24. The second word is the word ex or ad, whatever, you know. And what that word means is that you would be purchased, redeemed, your debt would be paid for the purpose of use. In other words, you were buying a servant because you needed a servant. And so your debt would be paid and you would be serving. And so if that was the word, then that would mean that he redeemed us so that we could serve him. But that's not the word that's used in Romans chapter 3 verse 24. The word redeem that's used in the Greek is the Greek word lutro, L-U-T-R-O-O. 
And what that word means, the word translated redeemed, it means to be purchased in order to be set free. In other words, he came into the slave market and he saw us there and he considered our debt and what we owed and what we couldn't pay and he willingly paid the full price to cover the totality of our debt, but not so that he could sell us to another master and not so that he could use us in his service, but he purchased us so that he could set us free. If you can imagine the picture of someone being purchased out of the slave market and then granted their freedom, set free. And that's what it means that our sins were paid for. That we were redeemed. The redemption that is in Christ Jesus is that he paid the price. And so our service to him is willful from day one. We become a bondservant not after six years of required service, but as soon as we come to him and we realize what he's done and who he is and what it means, we say, Lord, where else? Is there to go? You know, the whole existence of why people live on this earth and what people give themselves to while they walk on this earth is to find a master. People are living in order to find something to serve, someone to serve. Like Bob Dylan said, right? You can serve the devil or you can serve the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. And people spend their existence trying to find a master to serve. Well, let me ask you, what better master is there to serve? than the one who will purchase you to set you free. And it's with that sentiment that Paul, that Peter, that James would write and say, I'm a bondservant. There is nowhere else I would rather be than to be in the courts of my Lord. As David says, better is one day as a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than a thousand days elsewhere. There is no greater place, no greater life in the world than to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we can take the title of a bondservant of Christ. Holy goes on in verse 19 and he says, All the firstling males that come of thy herd and of thy flock, you shall sanctify unto the Lord thy God. That is, the first fruits of the harvest or of the flock belong to the Lord, that which came first. He says, You shall do no work with the firstling of thy bullock, nor shear the firstling of thy sheep. You're not to say, Well, I think I'll get a little bit of use out of this before I give it to the Lord. I'll I'll put it to work for a year or I'll wait until the time of the first shearing and then I'll give the Lord what belongs to him. He says, no, you're not to do that. He says, you shall eat it before the Lord thy God year by year in the place which the Lord shall choose you and your household. It's to be brought to the Lord. It's a sacrifice unto him. And then he says, and if there be any blemish therein, as if it be lame or blind or have any ill blemish, you shall not sacrifice it unto the Lord thy God. Isn't it interesting that he has to tell us that? Like, look, don't give me the lame, the blind, the, 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 the three-legged sheep that's there hobbling through the pasture and say, which one should I give to the Lord? Ah, yeah, there it is. Nice white one over there. Three legs or can't see. It's bumping into trees. You know, that's the one that I'm giving to. Isn't it just like us, you know, to give to the Lord our leftovers? But no, no, no. They were to find the best and they were to offer to the Lord the first fruits and the best of what it was. And ultimately, that was a precursor of what Jesus Christ would be. That the offering had to be without blemish. That they weren't to offer just whatever because Jesus wasn't just whatever. But he was the pure and spotless Lamb of God without blemish, without sin, perfect in every way. And it was that which God accepted. And so the the unblemished sacrifice was a precedent for them. that They would understand that the price for sin is innocence and perfection, not the lame that's left over. And so they were to offer that. He says, you shall eat it within thy gates, the unclean and the clean person shall eat it alike as the roebuck and as the heart only you shall not eat the blood thereof you shall pour it upon the ground as water now as we come to chapter 16 he talks to them about the three feasts that were mandatory for them to attend year by year the three feasts that he talks to them about are the feast of passover which would be in the spring the feast of pentecost which would be in the summer seven weeks after the Passover. And then the third was the Feast of Tabernacles, which would be in the fall. 
And so three times in the year, they were required to present themselves before the Lord in Jerusalem and, and to keep those feasts and all of the rituals and all of the, 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 the remembrance that went along with them. Now, when you read Leviticus chapter 23, which is where the feasts are instituted, there were actually seven feasts. Here, only three of them are mentioned, but there were actually seven. And so you say, well, why, if there were seven in Leviticus, are only three mandatory, three required? Very practical answer. Here's why. Because the first three feasts all took place during the same week. They Passover, unleavened bread, and uh, somebody help me here. First fruits, thank you. Those three fall or spring feasts would all take place during the same week. So if you kept the feast of Passover, you were automatically keeping the other two feasts. In the fall, there were also three feasts, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And all three of those feasts fell in the same two-week period of time. And so if you were to keep that feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you would automatically be keeping the fall feast, and therefore, by keeping these three feasts, you would ultimately be keeping all seven feasts. Well, what was the significance of the feast? Why is it that God wanted them to stop life those three times during the year, and to pack up the family, and make all of the arrangements, and head down to Jerusalem to keep those feast days? Well, first of all, for remembrance. The Passover was all about the remembrance of how God had redeemed them from Egypt. How he had set them free from the bondage that they were under, under Pharaoh's hand. And how he led them through the Red Sea and then brought them out that he might ultimately bring them in. And they were never to forget that as a nation. And so they were to look back on that every year so as never to lose focus of what had happened for them. The Feast of Pentecost was a celebration of God's faithfulness and God's provision to give them a harvest year by year. And then the fall feasts, the Feast of Trumpets and the Feasts of, uh, you know, um, a Day of Atonement and then the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles was to look back upon remembrance of how they dwelt in tents or tabernacles during the 40 years that God preserved them in the wilderness. And so God wanted them to take that time to just stop life and to go to Jerusalem where there would be no distractions, there would be nothing that would be vying for their attention, and that they would just reflect as an entire nation, man, woman, and child, and that they would be completely immersed in what God had done for them. Now, what we discover as we go through the scriptures is that not only were those feasts looking back at what God had done, but they were also prophetic to what God was going to do. See, the spring feasts, the feast of first fruits, and the feast of unleavened bread, and the feast of Passover, all three of those feasts prophetically looked forward to the first coming of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that he is our unleavened bread. Leaven is always a picture of sin in the Bible, and Jesus was sinless. He was unleavened without, without leaven. The Passover. Jesus was the Passover lamb. John the Baptist said, Behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so Jesus was the Passover. It was his blood that was sprinkled upon the lentil and the two posts of the door and that would drip onto the floor, a perfect picture of the cross. It was the blood that the death angel would see that would cause him to pass over that house, that death wouldn't touch that house. And so Jesus was our Passover. It was looking forward to what he would do. And Jesus was also the first fruits. Paul says he's the first fruits of those that rose from the dead, speaking of his resurrection. And so those first three feasts in the fall were prophetic, looking forward to the first coming of Jesus Christ. And all three of those prophetic feast symbols have been fulfilled in the first coming of Christ. The fourth feast, the Feast of Pentecost, which was seven weeks after the first fruits, the Feast of Pentecost was prophetic of the day the Holy Spirit would come down on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And the church would be born. 
The love offerings, if you read it there in Leviticus 23, a blending of the grains, neither Jew nor Greek, and baked with leaven as the church is loaded with leaven, not like Jesus, who was the first fruits. And so Pentecost, a picture prophetically of the coming of the Holy Spirit when the church would be born, that feast also fulfilled. But the three fall feasts, the three that would be celebrated in the harvest time, those were all, those are all prophetic of something that hasn't happened yet. They're prophetic of the second coming of Jesus Christ. The Feast of Trumpets. It'll be fulfilled when the trumpet sounds at the end of the church age and the church is caught up to meet the Lord in the air. The Day of Atonement where Our redemption is sealed where the purchased possession is brought into the presence of God and declared to be just as our sins are forever separated from our mortal bodies. And the Feast of Tabernacles, which is symbolic of our dwelling with God, like Jesus said in John chapter 14, I go to prepare a place for you in my Father's house are many mansions. They're prophetic, speaking of the second coming, that time that will yet be. And so these feasts, God wanted it to be in their mind what they meant. He wanted them to understand the symbolism that was involved in it, that they might be aware of what he had done and what he was yet to do, planning to do with his people on earth. And so verses 1 through 17 there explain to them the necessity of their keeping of these feasts and the requirement of them. And you can read those verses on your own. By the way, I think it's a great practice for the church to keep those three things in mind constantly. Our redemption, the fact that we have been gifted with the Holy Spirit of God and purchased and sealed and made a part of his church, Pentecost, and to remember that he's coming again, that year by year we should give concerted effort to attend, to be mindful of those things. And we do that here. I, I'm so thankful that every every Passover, every Easter, we we Good Friday, we talk about the cross and we take the time to remember the resurrection. And we gather all summer long. God gave us those months to celebrate as a church who we are and what he's done and how he works in our midst. And always, every year, we get into the subject of prophecy. Where are we at? When is he coming? To remind ourselves of his soon return. So important. Now, in chapter 16, verse 18, he begins a section. And in my humble opinion, and it is a humble opinion, not worth much, I think that chapter uh, 17 should start here because it really does start a new subject that carries right on. So we'll just pretend that it does. And so chapter 16, verse 18, he begins now talking about matters of civil justice. That's the topic of this portion of the scripture. And so he says in verse 18, he says, Judges and officers shalt thou make thee in all thy gates which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Throughout all thy tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. Thou shalt not wrest judgment, that's to twist it or contort it or manipulate it. You shall not respect persons, neither take a gift. For a gift doth blind the eyes of the wise and pervert the words of the righteous. That which is altogether just, thou shalt follow, thou mayest, or that thou mayest live and inherit the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. So they were to establish judges, and he gives us basically three principles here, three things to understand concerning these judges. Is that first of all, they were to be pointed in the gates of each city or each town, each location. When you read about the gates of a city or the gates of a town in the Bible, it always speaks to us about the place where government took place. The gates of the city would be where legislation was passed, where laws were discussed, where debates were held about policy and matters and matters of judicial, uh, you know, renderings and all of that. That would happen in the gates of the city. And he says that the judges are to be appointed in the gates of each city. That is, that there were to be local magistrates or local authorities in each area that would judge the causes. And so they were to be available. They were to be local. They were also to be honest and fair. They weren't to manipulate. They weren't to respect persons. They weren't to take gifts and bribes. They were to be blind, as the proverb says, that justice is blind, right? And and, and the third thing that God tells them, and this is a warning, and it's there at the end of verse 20, he gives to them the understanding 
that if a judge is honest and good, or if a judge is corrupt, it will be reflected in the well-being of the land or of that place. In other words, God connects the honesty and the integrity of the judge to the blessing that he will place or remove from the land that that judge is presiding over. He says, that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord God gives you. Now understand this, and don't miss this. If you haven't heard anything I've said for the last 20 minutes, tune in now. Understand this. Is that Israel was not just to be another civil entity in a sea of other civil entities that existed in the world at that time. Is that they were a spiritual people and they were in a covenantal relationship with God. That's who they were. And the strength of that relationship that they had with God had a direct reflection upon how well they did and how much success they experienced as a national entity. So their relationship with God is what caused them to either succeed or fail. If their relationship with God was strong, they would do well. If their relationship with God was poor, then they would do poor. And that's the way it was to be with Israel. They were distinct. They were separate. So what's the point? Here's the point. Is that part of the responsibility that the judges had was to maintain an atmosphere that was conducive to spiritual health between the people and their God. Is that they were to keep things in such a way as that morality and obedience to what God said was the standard and that they kept things in that regard. Because that would reflect in how things went. In other words, if if things were corrupt and people were corrupt, then their job would be a nightmare. Because there would be crime and theft and problems and disputes and arguments and, and they would be judging cases. There would, there would have to be, excuse me. <coughs> Sorry, thank you. you. Get the mic, you know, it helps you, it helps me. Anyway, so it was part of their responsibility to make sure that things were right between the people and with God. Now, with that being said, what follows now are three principles that Moses gives to these guys to basically help them to govern in a way that would help that. The first one is here in verse 21. Notice what it says. He says, you shall not plant a tree, or I'm sorry, you shall not plant thee a grove of any trees near unto the altar of the Lord thy God, which thou shalt make thee. Neither shall you set thee up any image which the Lord thy God hateth. Here's principle number one. Here it is. Ready? You shall not distract from, alter, or remove the place of sacrifice. You shall not distract from, alter, or remove the place of sacrifice. The altar was the place where the sacrifice would be made. It's the Old Testament equivalent to the cross of Jesus Christ. It was the place where sin was judged and atonement was made. See, you would come to the altar. You were the sinner and you were approaching God. And in an Old Testament system, you would bring an unblemished, perfect, spotless lamb or a bull or a ram or whatever the sacrifice was at that time. And you would bring it there to the altar, and you would meet with God. And your hands would be laid upon the head of that innocent, unblemished animal, and you would confess your sins, and thereby you would be spiritually transferring the guilt of your behavior onto the head of that innocent lamb or that innocent animal. And then you would take the knife in your hand, and you would then cut its throat. And it would be bloody. It would be messy. Because what you would be doing is you would be identifying with the sacrifice. You would be cognizantly transferring your sins and your penalty onto something that doesn't deserve to die, that did no wrong, that is innocent and harmless. And for you, it would be a constant reminder of what sin cost. It's the same thing that the cross of Christ represents for you and for me. 
See, we, we look at the cross, and what does the cross represent? It represents God Almighty, who became a man, who lived a sinless life. He was the spotless and pure Lamb of God. And every one of the sins that you and I committed was transferred upon his head, and he was pierced, and he was beaten, and he was pressed with a crown of thorns, and he was smitten in the face with a rod, and he was marred so much that even his mother wouldn't recognize him. And that was because of what you and I did. It was what our sin cost. And the image of that, the significance of that was never to be removed from the sight of the people. The altar of God was not to become a distraction. There wasn't to be beauty around it that would, oh, wow, look how nice. Look what they've done with the place where the atmosphere becomes the significance and and the glory of it and not what it represents significantly, the offering of sin. That was never to be the case. They were never to change it and make it something it wasn't intended to be or to remove it and put an image in its place, something that would represent it but not be it. They weren't to do that. It's amazing today in the church of Jesus Christ, the pull that we feel in the church to move away from the cross, to get rid of the cross from the message of the gospel. Preach Christian living. Preach good works. Preach peace and love and prosperity, but don't preach the cross. Talk about the love of God and the grace of God, but don't talk about sin or or, or, or the things that really matter, the things that bring glory to what Jesus did. Don't do that. And there's a constant pull in the church to move away from those things. Don't talk about the cross. We don't want to hear about the blood. It's not conducive to large crowds and ornate buildings. Don't do that. We feel that pull. We certainly see the consequences of what it's done to us as a nation. To remove the influence of the cross. To remove the influence of God's word and the gospel of Jesus Christ from the epicenter of who we are as a people. We've seen what that does to a people and to a nation. What's it do? Makes you go from the greatest lending nation in the world to the greatest borrowing nation in the world in a matter of a generation. It makes our children go from having a sense of purpose and a sense of direction and a sense of meaning in their life to being so lost that they have no direction. They're just killing themselves and mutilating their bodies and becoming nothing. Their lives are being wasted. Why? Because they've lost sight of what's important. The influence of the cross has been removed from their visage, from their sight. We see it. We see it happening. And God says, it's never to happen. Do not remove the altar. Don't decorate its atmosphere and make it something it's not. Don't remove it from the sight of the people, but let them constantly understand that it's their sin paid for by my provision that makes them anything. And it's their adherence to my ways that makes their nation to be blessed. So don't remove the place of the altar. Number two, he goes on in verse one. He says, thou shalt not sacrifice unto the Lord thy God any bullock or sheep wherein is blemish or any evil favoredness, for that is an abomination unto the Lord thy God. And here's number two for the judges, for those that would be interested in maintaining an atmosphere of righteousness amongst the people of God, number two, is be careful that you do not compromise the standard. The standard of the offering was that it had to be perfect. The worshiper had to bring an unblemished lamb. It had to be inspected by the priest and approved Because it had to be perfect. Why? Because that was the standard of righteousness. The standard of righteousness before a holy God is perfection. And that was part of the symbol. And God says, God knows that our tendency is always going to be to compromise. Well, the the, the sacrifice doesn't have to be perfect. For you and I, well, my behavior doesn't have to be perfect. I mean, I... I mean, we're, God knows we're not perfect. We try really hard, but, but he knows. He knows me. He made me this way. And you know what happens? We start to compromise. The standard gets lowered. The standard of what's... We're not under the law. I understand that. I'm not preaching law. But here's what happens is that once compromise becomes the standard of what's right and what's wrong, we're going to compromise here. We're just, here's what happens is that you can't stop the progression of what compromise brings forth. And it causes an erosion of morality in the people. You understand? And so he says, don't compromise in this. The sacrifice has to be perfect. 
because it represents what is required. Our standard, you and me, is Jesus Christ. The Bible says that he set for us an example that we should walk in his footsteps. Now, do any of us come match up to that measurement? Absolutely not. Does God know we don't? Absolutely. Is God upset with us that we mess up? No, he's not. That's why he went to the cross. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But it's always to be what we strive for. Is that Jesus Christ is our example. I one time had a plaque. I lost it, but it said this. and It was on the wall. It said, be careful what the kids see you do because they will only rise to your lowest standard. Meaning my lowest standard will be their highest. And that's true in all of life. Is that if your standard is compromised, then be careful what happens in those that come after you because the standard will always get lower and lower. Don't compromise. And the number three is in verses two through five here. He says, if there be found among you within thy gates, which the Lord thy God giveth thee, a man or a woman that hath wrought wickedness in the sight of the Lord thy God in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshiped them, either the sun or moon or any of the host of heaven, which I have not commanded, And it be told thee, and thou hast heard of it, and inquired diligently, and behold, it be true, and the thing certain that such abomination is wrought in Israel, then you shall bring forth that man or that woman which has committed that wicked thing unto the gates, even that man or that woman, and you shall stone them with stones till they die. Number three is you shall not be slack in dealing with iniquity in the nation. You say, man, that's harsh. Yeah, it's harsh. Here's why. Because the stakes were high. Because the infusion of a little bit of wickedness that's allowable and justified or condoned under the auspice of liberty that they have has the potential of destroying the entire nation. That if we protect the liberty of a little bit of wickedness, just a few people who do wickedly, then the potential of that wickedness is that it will cost ultimately the destruction of the whole nation. A number of years ago, a wise wise debater in the arena of public policy said these words. He said, wisely, he said, before you remove a fence, make sure you know why it was put there. (laughs) because God knows, God only knows what you might be letting in. What we've been doing in this country for the past 100 years is we've been removing fences. We've been removing the barriers that have been erected by our forefathers, barriers of morality, barriers of scriptural obedience, barriers of keeping God at the epicenter of things in our nation. We've just been removing fences left, right, and center. And no one is stopping in the middle of all this to say, well, what do things look like six months from now or 10 years from now or 20 years from now or 50 years from now when we get rid of this thing? And now we're beginning to see what it begins to look like. It's just an a landslide of wickedness, and it ultimately tends to the destruction of the nation. And here's what God says. God says, when you turn your back on me, and when you begin to walk in ways that my word calls wickedness, you're on the fast track to destruction. And so you're not to allow it. Now he goes on, the manner of the judgment, he says, at the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses shall he that is worthy of death be put to death, but at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death. So in other words, you couldn't just not like someone and you know, haul them before the gates and then they would just, no, no, you needed two witnesses at least. And then, furthermore, verse 7, the hands of the witness shall be first upon him to put him to death. Now that's great wisdom, isn't it? If, if you brought an accusation of some, something to, to someone that was worthy of death, you had to be the one that threw the first stone. And you would certainly think twice if you were just making something up or if you just didn't like the person or something like that. You know, you had to do it as well as... The other witness that was with you. 
And then he says, and afterward, the hands of all the people, and so shall you put away the evil from among you. And that's great wisdom of God as well, is that it wasn't just the witnesses, and it just wasn't the judges, but all of the people of the nation would be required to partake in that. That's excellent wisdom, because what that would do is that it would keep a few people from having control over the laws of the nation and doing with them whatever they wanted, that everyone would have a part to play in the enforcing of the justice. And then he says, If there arise a matter too hard for thee in judgment between blood and blood, between plea and plea, and between stroke and stroke, being matters of controversy within thy gates, then you shall arise and get thee up into the place which the Lord thy God shall choose. And you shall come unto the priests, the Levites, and unto the judge, that would be the, 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 the presiding judge, like you, know, like you read about in the book of Judges, that shall be in those days, and inquire, and they shall show thee the sentence of judgment. And so in this section, he's talking about what happens if the, the case is too complicated for you to settle just there in your town. You're to bring it to, then, to the Levites, the priests, and the judge. You're to bring it to the higher court. And, and, and so they, they would then judge. But here was the condition of that. And you can read on in those next few verses. Here was the condition that if you did that, if you went to the higher court, then you were bound by the decision that that court made. Is that you were saying that whatever that judge, whatever that verdict is, I'm going along with it, and I'm not going to sway to the right or to the left. And if you, if you refused it, you would be put to death. And so they, they were serious about making sure that that court held the highest authority. You really get the idea that God you know, looked at capital punishment as a deterrent for crime. That that's something that, that God says, hey, if people know that they're going to die if they do certain things, they won't do it. God made us that way. You know. And then in verse 14, you can look, he gives the rules concerning a king. And we close with this. He says, And when thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shall possess it, and shall dwell therein, and shall say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are around me. Isn't it interesting that Moses, by the Spirit of God, spoke this years before it happened, exactly like he said it. It was in the days of Samuel that the people came to him, and they said, we want you to set a king up over us like the other nations. And God knew it would happen, and so in verse 15, he gives the rules concerning that king. He says, you shall in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. Now, I'm glad that God wanted to be the one who chose who was going to lead his people. How many times have you, like me, looked at a ballot where we elect a leader and we say there's 300 million adults in this country and this is it? (laughs) This is what we have to choose from? God says you'll, you'll appoint the one that I choose. One from among thy brethren shall you set king over thee, and you may not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. So he had to be an Israelite. And then he says, these are the rules, verse 16. He said, but he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt uh, for the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord hath said unto you, you shall henceforth return no more that way. Now the idea here, you know, behind a horse was that it was a symbol of military strength. And God never wanted them to be in a position where they would lean so heavily upon the strength of their military that they would no longer trust in him. They would say, we're so far advanced and so far beyond the military capabilities of these other nations that we don't need to depend upon the Lord. And the Lord didn't want that. He wanted them to trust solely in him. And so the king was forbidden from multiplying horses. Verse 17, neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. Now the reason for this was not the the morality issue. It, It probably was to some degree, but what the kings would do in those days is that they would take wives that were the daughters of other kings. And the reason for it was political alliances 
and agreements and pacts and, 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 and those types of things. And they were never to do that. They were never to make an agreement with the other nations. And so they weren't to multiply wives to themselves, uh, you know, in, in that way. And then number three, neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that when we read about the reign of Solomon, who was by far the most glorious of all the kings that Israel ever had, he just gave complete disregard to all three of these things. We're told that he acquired and imported so many horses from Egypt that year by year they brought more and more of them in and that the strength of his military was incredible. We're told that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines, 1,000 wives and concubines, this man who was not to multiply to himself wives. And in fact... The, 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 the type of those marriages was exactly that of political and for political advantage. We read that he took the daughter of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, as one of his queens, one of his princesses. And it tells us that he built a temple to her God on the Mount of Olives in a house there. And it says that he did that also likewise for all of the others. And just like God said, it will turn their heart away. So also Solomon's heart was turned away from the Lord. And he wasn't to multiply silver and gold. And the Bible says that there was so much gold in the days of Solomon that silver was accounted like stones. And so he multiplied. The Bible says 666 talents per year of gold with Solomon's revenue. Wouldn't you have rounded up or down you know, 666, I make it 665 or something, you know. But no, no, God put it there that we would understand. And what happened to Solomon? Isn't it interesting that the wisest man in the world fell away from the Lord ultimately? And that gives me a lot of comfort, you know. Because sometimes I think, well, I could never match up because I don't have the wisdom of Solomon. You don't have to have the wisdom of Solomon. You could have the wisdom of Solomon and you could completely destroy your life. He did. What do you need? Just obey the Lord. Just do what God says, and you'll do better than Solomon. He says, And it shall be when he sits upon the throne of his kingdom that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book, out of that which is before the priests and Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them, that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren, and that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, to the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. That's great. God says the first thing that they're to do when they come into the throne is that they're to handwrite their own copy of the Torah. They're to handwrite it. And they're to stay in it. And that's to be their handbook and their guide all the days of their life. It will keep them humble. It will keep them in a place where they're governing justly and righteously. And it will set them in a place where I can do for them what I am wanting to do for them. And so we end this chapter on issues of civil, judicial matters. And we'll conclude, or I'm sorry, you know, continue in our study in chapter 18 uh, next week as we continue in our study of Deuteronomy. As we close and the musicians can come. Jesus said, you search the scriptures, and in them you think that you have life. He said, but they are those that testify of me. In other words, all of these scriptures, all of these laws, all of these precepts, all of these concepts that we're reading about here in Deuteronomy, ultimately point us to the person of Jesus Christ. How's that? Well, even in just what we looked at tonight, Jesus is the one who purchased us out of the slave market and set us free from our debt so that we might be free from the bondage of sin and from the corruption of the world. Jesus, not only the one that, that purchased us and bought us out of uh, the market, but he's also the one who is our Passover. And he's our first fruits, And he's our unleavened bread, our sinlessness. And he's the one that causes those things to avail to us. He is our judge, our justice, our righteousness, and our peace. And ultimately, he is the king. The king that we needed. The king that we wanted. Like we said, Lord, I need a king to reign over me. And he is the one that God has appointed to be the king over his people. And here's the beautiful thing about that, about Jesus our king. Is that he doesn't need 
the strength of an army to do in our lives what he's promised to do. Neither does he need us to have alliances and allegiances with important people or prominent persons or positions. He doesn't need any of that. Neither does he need all the silver and all the gold in the world. But he says, that which I have begun in you, I will be faithful to complete it until the day that I return. And I'm so thankful that we serve that kind of a king. Amen? So, Father, we just thank you so much for this word tonight. And we thank you that all of these testimonies point us right back to your son. And we would pray that you would cause our hearts to be continually united and linked with him. That we would truly love the Lord with all of our heart, all of our mind, and all of our strength. And that we would see ourselves through the lens of these plans, these prophecies, these pictures that you gave. And that our hearts would continually burn in passionate love for you, Jesus. So be with us, Lord. Continually draw us close to you. We thank you, Lord, for sharing your word with us tonight and for making us partakers of your Holy Spirit of promise. So be with us and keep us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.